0: Hello and welcome to the Hacker Noon podcast. My name is Amy and I am your host. I'm a new voice on the Hacker Noon podcast. And today I'm joined with Utsav, who is one of our VPs at Hacker Noon, and Sharmini, who's the Chief Marketing Officer at Mysterium Networks. And I'm very excited because I want to get into a little bit of decentralization and censorship and VPN, which is what Mysterium is providing. And I am really interested in this because in uh twenty nineteen I went to Myanmar, and Facebook is currently being banned in Myanmar, so there's a lot of topic around this conversation so I'm excited to chat to you today a little bit more about decentralization but Charmini, can you start off by telling us a little bit about your background and how you got started?
1: Well, I got into crypto maybe four years ago I came to work in this space and I was running an agency in the fintech space in Australia, in Sydney. And back then, there was literally a tiny industry in Sydney, you know, and things were growing in London, things are growing in New York, and I was getting massive FOMO. So I packed my bags and I went to London and I started to work with a few crypto projects over there, just consulting. That's when I really understood the market. I really understood what use cases I saw as long-term use cases for crypto. I mean, we're talking 2017, you know, there was such a mad flurry. And I think we have that mad flurry starting again in 2021, which is a just more regulated mad flurry, I would say. So I started to consult and I was working at an unconference for cryptocurrency people in Lithuania when I came to meet the Mysterium team. And... From the very beginning, I understood that distributed networks were a natural use case for cryptocurrencies because you don't have a global payment system. How does someone pay another person, like a person in the US pay someone in India second by second using PayPal? It doesn't exist and it's gonna be way too expensive in terms of transaction fees. So I was looking at distributed computing, distributed VPN, and i met Mysterium Network and I was super excited about the project. And that's when I went on board. When I started at Mysterium, they had a command line interface. And um, I'm like, wait, what, what, what do I do with this? <laughs> you know? So we started to build out applications right now. We are on Mac, Windows, Android, and very soon we'll be on iOS. So that's an exciting piece that we have coming up. And we've got you know our node networks at an all time high at the moment. I actually was just writing a blog post that's gonna go live. We had a thousand exit nodes. We've had a hundred terabytes of traffic go through our network. We've come a really long way in the last two and a half years that I've been there. And I'm super excited about the work we're doing to open the internet for everyone and build it so that it's blind to borders.
0: Right. Can you talk a little bit more about what a decentralized network would mean in terms of crypto? I know you talked about that a little bit, but can you expand on that a little bit more? I think that's really interesting.
1: So our network at Mysterium specifically, and I think this kind of is a metaphor for wider distributed networks as well, is peer-to-peer. So people running software at the other end of the transaction are not a business, they're human. And this means that you're kind of distributing power from centralized pieces of the internet that have shaped the internet in a very specific way. The internet wasn't actually built to be this multi-centralized monopoly that we're seeing right now and this shift of distributed networks to peer-to-peer networks think torrents you know like torrents were initially peer-to-peer but not incentivized and I think now with blockchain technology this added new piece allows for scalability of this because incentives kind of drive everything in the world and now we have clear incentives for people to provide services and gain from it passive income is like the mantra of our new gig economy generation, isn't it? So like, it's one of those pieces that I think really contribute to it. When we first went after nodes early on, when we were building out the network, a lot of the kind of people that we were looking at were people who looked at passive income as a means to just live people living off multiple streams we're talking uber drivers we're talking you know there's so many different kind of use cases in the real world that this is just another way that people could do this another way people could cut their internet bill in half for, if you think about it or or even completely pay for it and i mean it doesn't seem like a lot to many of us listening i'm sure but um, for a university student this is an extremely attractive value proposition we found so i'm very for distribution of power. And I think this has been a really interesting way in which we can do that kind of using blockchain technology and peer to peer thinking.
0: Yeah, I think that an interesting use case for that too, is the worldwide use of it, because I've worked with a few people and just had to transfer money in between countries or people of multiple countries. And this is my peer is not business to business or business to me. And it's like, impossible. I I don't know, in Canada, we transfer our money via email, typically, and nobody else does that. And when I started asking people for money or for transfers, people were like, what the hell are you talking about? And then there's like transfer wise or like PayPal or something, but those are complicated. And again, go through the centralized banking system. So I can definitely see a big use case around that for worldwide transfers. I think that's really interesting.
1: Oh, for sure. I think, I mean, if you talk about like the Bitcoin piece, right, where we're talking about transfer of like bigger sums as it may be, I think that in itself, me paying you for my half for dinner, if we happen to have dinner cross nationally, (laughs) which in the time of COVID is very possible. So um, uh, that itself is super interesting. And then we talk about in the distributed systems, there is also once you remove the centralized body, there's a trust gap between the service provider and the user. So you don't wanna provide service for say a day and not get paid because you're not gonna be able to get the service back. So with micropayments, I think that's the super interesting use case that we've explored in our payments infrastructure. There you can go by second by second or gigabyte based payments, right? Where you're paying by the second and there's no need to trust the other parties. So that's why we're trustless in a great way And I think once we do that, you remove that element, that need for centralized bodies because what is PayPal other than just something you trust to hold your money? Like, and directly paying some wallet. Do you know what I mean? So, I mean, I think that blockchain really is going to change how we fundamentally operate as a society. We're really in the early days. I was actually at um, dinner with a friend and I was talking about blockchain to someone who's not in the space. And I'm like, it's not just about financial transactions because he's a financial controller. I'm like, think about it. Data is like currency. And once you have interoperable blockchains that kind of are able to move data and financial transactions simultaneously or using smart contract based logics or whatever abstraction layer we get on top of smart contracts, that's when you really start to see humanities evolve out of this trapped phase where we're the product because the Products are free to us.
0: Yeah, I love how you talked about data as a currency. I think that's a really key piece of it. And that's also why centralization is becoming such an issue on the internet and with people who value their data privacy, because who owns your data or who gets to be able to see your data and use your data is the big question. So, using decentralized VPNs, any decentralized services will take away the data from big corporations essentially is that what you're saying
1: well i ideally yes like once we have all of them existing you know if you have your decentralized facebook you have your decentralized instagram and you start to see there's always going to be that painful shift moment right because you have all your data on these existing platforms that are centralized and then there's that initial pain to switch or like friction to switch but i think that more and more we're seeing pop culturally, people understand that data is something of value. Their personal data is of something of value because it, because of how much time they spend digitally, they can see how their worldview is controlled digitally as well. So I think we're living in a very pivotal moment. I think in the next couple of years we're going to see. I mean, you see with GDPR as well. You know, there's real thinking coming from even a regulatory aspects as to how enterprises need to think about the movement of data, the storage of data, think about how much of a headache it's gonna be for like a huge enterprise. I'm talking like a Forbes 500 to actually be GDPR compliant after running for this long.
0: (laughs) It is crazy. I worked in the security space and I worked with a lot of enterprise companies. And when GDPR was introduced, I was still working in the security space. And so many companies were like, we have no idea what we're doing. And I remember the first big fine. I think it was Google and it was like a billion dollars or something. And everyone was like, oh my God, this is it. It's crazy. And that was back in like, I don't know what, 2017 or something like that. So yeah. Decentralization it's- and protection of data, I think is a big topic now. And also it's like, who owns your data and who gets to use it is the, the piece that I think is really interesting. Because I think what people don't realize is these big companies like facebook and instagram how much they're collecting like they know your device information your operating system your battery information your location all your contacts who you're talking to
1: yeah
0: <laughs> like they know like all of your conversation history and everything and especially with the new thing with uh whatsapp the privacy policy that they rolled out you know like Having being able to sell your data to third parties or for advertising purposes so that they can see who you're talking to, what your photo is, your device information. And WhatsApp is supposed to be an end-to-end encryption product. So taking away the power from the user and being able to sell that data to third-party companies is, is like a huge a huge miss, I think. And so that's why a lot of people are moving over to Signal or Telegram. And you can see that people are wanting to become more decentralized.
1: I mean, what did we expect when Facebook bought WhatsApp yet? For them oh my to God, I know. It? <laughs> it's a, that's the fin- I guess the painful process with these monoliths that we have at the moment. I think it's a ground up movement. I've been very proud to work alongside really smart people. Mysterium was used quite a lot in Nigeria during the end SARS protest to help people communicate when communications lines were shut down, access information when they couldn't because of the ISP blocking certain domains. So in that, like, I do think it's grassroots, it's a pressure up, most pressure down because even though you have this regulatory piece, there's still this, this needs to come from individual humans. It's a choice. It's a choice to live within the centralized world or not. And it's a choice to, accept that we are more and more becoming digital citizens and and the ramifications if of not being aware of how to take care of yourself online. I mean let us not even talk about the every man. Let's talk about the fact that Ledger was um Ledger France. I was in France <laughs> Ledger, France. There was a e-commerce data dump of everyone who purchased Ledgers for a couple, a couple of months on the dark web. I think that's insane. That's insane, and it's a and this is just us having to do housekeeping as an industry to make sure that we are taking care of security and make, building more and more trust within the cryptocurrency and blockchain space because we're such a new technology and such so misunderstood because of the hype that people might miss the actual value proposition, which is disintermediation of power or returning people like returning power into the hands of people, giving people more choices on their digital lives yeah i think i hope i get to see it at 2030 at least (laughs) so
0: yes so can you explain to me a little bit more about how the decentralized vpn connects with the cryptocurrency piece of mysterium because i think that's the part that i'm not really understanding fully
1: so when you think about an average user let's say you're in you're in vancouver right? And you want to watch Netflix in the US. And most VPNs actually have a problem with this because they run data center IPs. These are centralized VPNs. They're just servers that have data center IP addresses, which means they behave in a certain way. And Netflix is another monolith. You know, they have people who are able to blacklist IPs and, and constantly fight against this because that's their business model. So in that sense, VPNs have this problem of unblocking Netflix anyway, but on a wider stance, you're in Vancouver and you want to watch Netflix in the US. What Mysterium has is a bunch of residential IPs because they run at home. People run node software on their laptops or on Raspberry Pi computers. They can just plug into their router and serve the IP address. So they're, you're renting Greg from the US's IP address and you're pay him, paying him gigabyte by gigabyte in Mist, which is our native token, which is the kind of the fuel for the network and it's the way in which you will kind of spend for vpn service as you go now if you look at the traditional vpn market you see a lot of subscription-based services you see a lot of offers to buy now and you get it for two dollars 20 a month and pay for the annual subscription now a lot of people buy this and don't use it there's a reason why VPN businesses are massive marketing machines is because they have huge margin. People buy it because they get a promo message in their face and they don't actually use the service on a day-to-day basis. Also, that price locks out a lot of the emerging market. So what Mist does for Mysterium is it makes our service pay as you go. You top it up and you only pay when you're using the VPN. If you're not using the VPN, you're not paying for anything. And we did some math on this and I think it's about 6 cents to watch a movie.
0: Oh, okay. So you're saying yeah. that so, if I'm using Mysterium, I can use Greg's network from his how his home IP address in the states and I am paying him some of my mist tokens to do that.
1: That's right. That's ah, absolutely right. Okay. Okay, yeah, cool. So yeah. Sense, we've actually got a really interesting cuz we're not we're pretty um agnostic as a project. We're more interested in growth of our network, growth healthy growth of our node network. So we have an integration with CoinGate, which allows you to top up Mysterium DVPN with Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, BCH, like a whole range of very popular cryptocurrencies. And it switches it under the hood to MIST. So you don't even need to go buy MIST. You know, you, you like if you're a cryptocurrency holder, you can just top it up with 0.000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000, 000 depending on the price of bitcoin and you have missed and you can start using that service and it just you know you can top it up whenever you run out
0: yeah yeah that's an interesting model to pay as you use vpn because yeah you're right vpn is some vpns are not cheap and you you only use them when you want to watch netflix so this totally makes sense
1: yeah and beyond that, the free VPNs, you're the product. Yeah, like it's a, its another one of those. We see a lot of that, especially trying to go to market in, in regions that are emerging. You see a lot of targeting of free VPN. And there is a huge education piece in the communications of decentralized VPN on the value of paying a little bit, not too much, but a little bit for your privacy. Because when it's free, like it's such a shady, obscure industry, right, that's we needed to come and disrupt it. We needed to come and bring transparency to it because there, there are such, there's actually very few VPN companies. Most of the ones that become successful get bought over by a few monopolies. I, I think I called it a, I think it's more of an oligopoly than a monopoly, but it's a few parent groups and a lot of brands out there. So what happens behind the scenes is you have a few very powerful companies with all the data. <laughs> <laughs> and do yes, that
0: which is essentially going back to centralization. So exactly. when you say decentralized VPN, that means that there's also VPNs that are centralized.
1: Of course, all VPNs that are not decentralized are centralized VPNs. They are people who they're people who run it. There's an the entity that holds it. They they own servers all over the world, and it looks the same because you go into the interface and you can connect to the US, but you're connecting to a US server owned by this company as compared to in a decentralized VPN space where you're connecting to a person running software and that you don't need to connect to that person ever again. You know, you can keep switching it up. And that means that we're quite similar to Tor network in that sense, but we're incentivized.
0: Right. So if I'm truly concerned about my data privacy and taking away the power from the big corporations, I would rather go with a decentralized VPN service because, Theoretically, these centralized VPN services, they have these data centers and they could get hacked. So, my data is still being stored somewhere and it could get leaked.
1: Well, it's not, well, it has happened. You know, I don't want to n- drop names, but it's consistently happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've got a newsletter on this, I think. <laughs> but um, yeah, like it's, it's consistently happened. It's a central point of failure. It makes no sense at a time when we, as at least, in the tech space understand that with a central point of failure, you will be attacked. And if there is enough incentive to attack you, you will be attacked. So might as well work on distributing the actual infrastructure. I think Ethereum is going to be a core piece of Web3 infrastructure in that sense. We don't just provide VPN services throughout GVPN. I think in the future, our leadership team have some plans to kind of grow towards developer based ecosystem building and have chat applications running traffic through a Mysterium network. So we live as the kind of undercurrent network that you can plug in and out of. So you don't need to build your own decentralized VPN network. You know, you just plug into it and then every application is run on a VPN network without a user having to actually run a VPN. And that's like a much longer term vision for the project. I think we will move from being a consumer application in the next year to being more like the privacy, the stripe of privacy, if you may, you know, like the infrastructure through which content can move, traffic can move and be accessed globally. Mm -hmm, Right. Yeah.
0: I want to ask you about something that you mentioned about the growing pains of moving towards decentralization. Do you think that with the current way the modern internet is set up, it's possible to completely decentralize from
1: modern internet and have your data be your own? <laughs> I mean, I have this conversation a lot with our development team. I think it's a matter of you have to build on building blocks. And when you're building towards Web3, you're building on building blocks that are being built at the same time. So, you know, you're kind of it's it's kind of hybrid systems coming together to make it work because no Web3 project is completely standalone like Mysterium. We still need the Ethereum blockchain. We still need CoinGate as an integration partner. We're working with Matic, I think they're now Polygon, as our level two, layer two partner to make transactions cheaper. And all of these are new projects that are building on top of each other. So it's a hybrid movement towards decentralization. I think it's possible to decentralize from day one. It doesn't make sense either. You want to build a user base, test the use case, And then, like, and and move towards uh, a decentralized system under the hood. So, I would say Mysterium is pretty, like, our development team is pretty. Let's decentralize it, um, humans. So it's a it's a tension between let's go to market, humans, and let's decentralize it. So that's um, it's a nice it's a nice tension to have, I think, because we want to stay core to the vision, which is decentralization, which is to make sure that this power shift happens. So. That Yeah, I guess I hope I've answered your question.
0: Yeah, I think it's totally finding that balance between how can I live on the modern internet the way it is and still be able to connect with my friends and look things up and take courses or whatever, where I'm putting my data out there and still have my data be private and used the way that I want it to be used so it's totally about finding that balance which is kind of the tricky thing I think like how do I use the internet while still being invisible almost
1: it was so interesting I was in China and I was trying this was a couple of years ago and I was trying so hard to just access maps using a VPN and I couldn't and I actually couldn't even access um, gmail And that really tripped me out, but it makes sense, actually, because we all know Google is blocked in China, but, you know, some wires Mm -hmm. were not, like, crossing in my mind. And strangely enough, Slack worked. I was copy-pasting emails and working with my team to make sure that we could keep communicating while I was in China. And that just shows that you kind of have to wire it together. That was my little metaphor for that. Like, you just kind of have to wire whatever works together based on your individual internet situation because you're talking about your internet situation and in, in Vancouver like we've done some deep dive research into the great firewall of China and I was speaking with our lead researcher on that and he was telling me that their internet is just insanely slow and you can't just set up an internet like a website you need to register the domain so the internet's not as much as a free space as it is for you and me, which we can just go to godaddy.com, buy a domain, you know, connect it to Squarespace, and I'll be up and running with the website. It's not that easy in other jurisdictions. So that's been a really interesting insight for me to understand the different internet situations of different regions. Talking to our representatives in Nigeria, we actually sponsored a town hall for them so they could buy SIM cards to have stable enough internet to just connect for a video call. So this is like, it's important to understand that our perception of our individual internet, I'm in Singapore with fiber optics, you know, you're in, you're in Vancouver, none of us are really struggling with the internet piece so much, but there's a lot of the world that have a very different screen they're looking into. Right. And, and too, with the
0: news piece that's coming up and Facebook's involvement with deciding which countries entirely get Facebook and which don't. What are your thoughts on that situation?
1: This is a really interesting one. I think it's quite similar to this whole discussion on Parler as well. You're talking about A, a corporation deciding, uh, like first, a government deciding or a a bigger corporation being AWS deciding that a another corporation cannot, can, must cease to exist in their ecosystem. And then you're talking about a corporation deciding that certain jurisdictions must cease to exist in their ecosystem. I think that the biggest problem is that this is not a people-powered decision. And that's why decentralization is super important, because I'm all for a community of people deciding how they would like to self-regulate. That's completely fine. But when the decision maker is an entity, which is the case in both these pieces, It's that's where it gets concerning because who is making that decision? Is it is it the enterprise itself or is it like the community that it serves?
0: Mm-hmm. Or like government involvement, like go- the governments seem to be working directly with Facebook because it is the biggest corporation. <laughs> and if you look at the Myanmar coup, For example, I I was there in Myanmar last two years ago now, and I met so many amazing people and they all use Facebook. They all wanted to add me on Facebook. I have like (laughs) 10 random Myanmar deeds on my Facebook profile because they're really they were really into it. And they kind of describe it as like a digital tea shop almost where they can still chat with each other online about politics or whatever they want to discuss and to take that away it, it as one of the biggest news sources to control the narrative i think is the the issue around that and why decentralization is important so yeah i, I definitely agree I, I think it's it should be in the hands of the user or not to the governing body to decide what gets put on the internet or not and the, but then you know there's also the thing with signal i heard that It's like kind of a balance between how much involvement they should have and shouldn't have, because I heard on Signal, because of the whole WhatsApp encryption privacy issue, they were saying we don't do any kind of censorship at all. Free for all, do whatever you want, which begs the question of what it would be used for. Obviously, it's going to be used for some illegal services as well. So finding a balance between that, I guess, and or just teaching people not to do illegal things. I don't know.
1: Freedom is just a double edged sword. I think it's just you can't choose, you know, you can't choose like you're free until this point because then someone is choosing where that point is. Whereas like I think governance tokens are coming back in 2021 and I think they're very interesting because they they are what help communities self-regulate and Hopefully with this shift towards governance tokens, you can you can see these kind. I think social media platforms are perfect for governance tokens and um, reputation systems. We definitely need that with all the fake news we got flying around. I think these are the technological elements that can start to improve the social media landscape, I guess. It's very sad in Myanmar, like the whole thing with the Myanmar coup. Um, We actually are looking for ways at Mysterium to build out a program. It's in very early stages. We've just worked with Nigeria, with the town hall and education on security online, how to protect themselves and how to communicate freely. But we would like to start a program where you can gift the internet to someone who is in need, right? We're looking at charity partners for that. So if you guys know anyone, like I'm more than happy to speak to charities on the ground. We really want to work with the people that most need um, these services and we want to create ways in which they can access our service, even if they don't have crypto, even if they don't have money. I don't think access to information should be something that is not at least as equalized as possible, which is kind of the point of the internet, right?
0: VPNs suck, but Mysterium is reinventing them altogether. It's actually a hybrid of Tor and VPN, and it's a pay-as-you-go system, so you just switch it on and off whenever you need and only pay for what you use. No email, no lock-in costs, no bank card needed. Download it now and receive some tokens to try before you buy. One of the early articles that I had edited with Hacker Noon was about how the Internet deepens the gender divide, too, because in countries where people can only afford one device per household, usually the male gets the device. And the woman doesn't have access to the use of internet to research health or connect with people or whatever it might be. So it deepens the knowledge gap between women and men because they don't have access to internet. So I think that was interesting as well.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, I think the gender gap, the, the money gap, like all of these power differences was what the internet kind of, that was the beginning theory of the internet right like that was the the use case for it and we've come such a long way so I really hope we can step back and rewire it I think there's a lot of interesting projects heading in the right direction towards it I'm really hoping that we do our jobs (laughs) together yeah
0: yeah the
1: original internet
0: was intended for open free information and we've moved away from that yeah for sure
1: super partisan now. We live in echo chambers of our own making. It's such a multi-pronged problem, first of all. You have the communications layer, the access layer, the community layer. Like There's so many different ways in which the internet has grown in the last 10, 15 years that we're in a space where we have to take all these new growths that humans are used to on the interface level and see what we can do under the hood to change up what how it actually affects them. I'm not sure if you guys saw this Netflix series, The Social Dilemma. I yes. Think, what did you think? Mm-hmm. You know, to be
0: honest, I was not surprised by any of that information because my background is in digital marketing. So I was like, okay, yeah, I knew that they were collecting that information. And I kind of feel like I have a unique position on this because I worked in cybersecurity for a long time three or four years and then I worked in digital marketing and so I'm like oh I love the collection part of me loves the collection of data because then the marketing gets better and your ads get better and you can target people better and that and you know that piece is also like kind of helpful because as a consumer if I'm looking for a specific kind of product Facebook kind of just recommends stuff to me but Then at the same time, yeah, I know how much data is actually being collected and the potential ramifications for personal data leakage and what that can mean for consumers and for businesses. So it's like very interesting. That documentary was very interesting to me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean. I guess we're just like, oh yeah, this is known. But I thought it was great it was a Netflix series because suddenly my mom was watching it. And I was like, yes, yes. mom, stop posting stuff on Facebook. <laughs> so yes. it, uh, it was a wonderful like kind of growth in the general pop cultural understanding of this. I think that with the whole social dilemma piece, like we've let centralized entities kind of eat into themselves because their whole business model is based on the collection of data i'm i'm curious what fang is gonna look like you know facebook amazon what is what is the end of fang netflix, netflix. yeah i was gonna say i think it's
0: netflix and then google yeah, <laughs> netflix
1: google. Like, yeah. these guys what's gonna happen to them because they're the one of the big some of the biggest stocks in the tech market yeah so it's a paradigm shift we're looking at and I think that I'm curious, as, as both as an investor and a person building in this space, I'm really curious to see how humanity takes the rails.
0: Yeah. And I think it's almost like we've gone so far into those corporations that we can't live without them. Like, can you imagine a world without Google? No, I can't. <laughs> it's,
1: it's actually really interesting. Going back to your point about digital marketing, because I think one of my challenges as the CMO of Mysterium Network is lack of visibility because we don't do this. Like we don't track in our app at all. So we have statistical data and maybe the country that you enter from, but nothing else. We got nothing on you. Like And and that as a digital marketer, I'm like, wait, so I can't see which campaign led to my most, my topping up. How do I track my conversions? (laughs) Exactly. So it's been a really interesting mindset shift as a marketer to go, okay, how do I go from a world of having insane access to personal data and targeting and understanding the psychology of a human through how they behave online to statistical data? So then you you have to, like, I think it's a fairer game against humanity. You still have statistical data, but you don't need you don't need to know when they, I don't know, feel sad and pop them some ice cream ad, you know, I think that's just too insidious a world to be, to be in, to be honest. I'd like to have yeah. control over my wants and desires to a certain extent, at least.
0: Yeah, for sure. And yeah, it, it's, it feeds into consumerism I so know. much. Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell you the amount of times I've bought things from ads before. It's
1: horrible. <laughs> oh I mean, telling me like, I i mean, I use an ad blocker, but like sometimes, you know, sometimes ads get around them and then I don't even realize that the ad has gotten around my ad blocker. And I'm like, well, I'm now I'm shopping. <laughs>
0: well, yeah. this- you know, in social media, their goal is to make it as integrated as possible so that you don't know. That you're being served an ad, so they're just gonna keep getting more and more creative. And then you know, have, yeah, have the things like Instagram influencers and stuff, where like that's organic, but
1: not, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we can't really do. I mean, so coming from the crypto space, you know, the influencer game here is is a hard one because you know most people don't trust projects; they trust influencers. Yeah, and influencers, influencers basically kind of have their a lot of sweet. I mean, look at like, I, would, I don't know if you consider Elon Musk an influencer, but I would. Like, look at what Elon did to Bitcoin's price, you know. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a matter of like, we live in a world where human capital is super, like this trust capital through an individual is so valuable and important. I think it's a natural part of any digital marketers arsenal.
0: Yeah, and to go back to centralization of the internet, it's it's probably because as consumers we're taught more and more not to trust corporations.
1: <laughs> that's, that's an amazing Yeah, I totally see that. It's a it's interesting. What about you guys with HackerNoon? You serve a pretty broad technical base. I'm pretty sure they recognize an ad that's been retargeted when they see one, no?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we're very careful of what we actually put on our website in terms of like (laughs) tracking stuff because, yeah, we're like, we have a lot of our readers who are very keen on decentralization. The only ad that we serve is a little yellow banner at the top of our homepage, and that's where most of our earnings come from. So that's kind of the way that that works. And yeah, I think a lot of our readers and user base is interested in keeping their data private so I as a marketer I'm often like David let's put on Facebook pixel and he's like no we can't do that (laughs) like okay I'm like let's let's use look like audience and retarget everybody and do all this stuff and he's like no (laughs) probably not I
1: know I'm exactly how you feel it is a mindset shift like I, I mean the number of times I've asked for it and also knowing I'm gonna get a no you know but sometimes you mm-hmm. just you gotta try I think the digital landscape is a war for attention and if we want to educate if we want to get in front of people who are getting blasted ads every three seconds I'm torn do we play the game do we do the game differently I'm trying to do it right. so let's see let's see how we go I'm like super happy to chat on like offline as well, but marketing strategy, that's statistical. God, I've been doing it for the last two and a half years. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I And I am just such a big, the digital marketer area in me is just such a big uh, supporter of, of like using data because it makes it so much easier for marketing purposes and billing your base of customers or for whatever you're selling and being able to track conversions is so valuable. but then, yeah, it's like the double-edged sword of the social dilemma. I feel like I am the social dilemma.
1: (laughs) 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 Um, It's really, I mean, it's amazing to chat like this with another marketer who is, who understands these kind of tensions that we work with. And like, I think at Mysterium, I'm pretty happy to see that like the development team has been staunchly like forget about it so it's it's been like and I, I as a marketer have also come from come to understand and really like go alongside with this mentality and I work very I think that if we want to actually transition the industry we as marketers need to also understand how to market using statistical data. It is not as easy for sure, but it it is probably more ethical and probably the right way to go. So at least, at least we're doing it right. And I hope that people understand, and we're doing it right at the same time as people's consciousness come to a point where they understand that these are the kind of people I would like to become customers of because they are not going to exploit me. Like in app, we don't do any tracking that is personal data related. And I'm pretty happy to say that because I don't know how many VPNs can come out and say that as well.
0: Yeah, I love uh, how you said the fear of exploitation. I think that is the big consumer fear that their data is going to be exploited by these big companies. So I think that's such a powerful word to
1: use to describe it. Yeah. I mean, it's happening to all of us. It's just something we have to accept. It's happening to all of us. And we have to make choices on where we let it happen and where we don't. Because we kind of live in this, like I said, war for our attention, right? It's like a, the marketers like you and me with less ethics out there, just retargeting us based on our past behavior. So that's something worth thinking about when you're using the internet. And that's one of the other reasons why I really like these decentralized tools like Decentralized browsers like Brave, searches. I think DuckDuckGo is a really, really great search engine as well that people can start using. One of the things that we did actually as an educational piece, completely unrelated to product, was an internet shutdown toolkit, which also showcases this kind of technologies that people can use in general for privacy. But we purpose-built it as a PDF downloadable on an IPFS link so that anyone in an internet shutdown can gain access to this resource and wired together a communications channel should they need it because that's super important can you imagine like most of the time internet shutdowns are happening it's during a uh, government voting moments yeah. you know like some kind of we, mass yeah. ddos attack or something <laughs> yeah well, it's a mess. Like I think governments shut down the internet when they don't want people to communicate, and that's a reality mm-hmm. that we face, especially yeah. with emerging markets. So we're seeing that again and again and again. And we need to come up with a way in which to help these countries because it is communication. It is it is people coming together at a time, and the internet is a great way to come together in a way that doesn't physically endanger you. You know, in a yeah. time, in a place where that could very well happen. For example, some of our Nigerian supporters. They went to a protest and we didn't hear from them for a couple of days. And we're literally worried that something happened to them. And it's a, it's yeah. such a real, like, once you know them personally, it's such a real, it's such a reality. And then they pop back up. They're like, oh, I'm fine. I'm like, I, I telegrammed you so many times. So it's an interesting, I think, really, really eye-opening to work with emerging markets, to work with activists on the ground locally who are really trying to educate on the internet, It's helped me understand how privileged I am, even based on my track, remarketed (laughs) browser, you know, like I am so much more privileged than the average person who can barely make a video call. Yeah. And
0: it it is becoming a humanitarian issue. You're right. And, you know, we joke about like, oh, what would happen if Google went away? But it could be a reality if the government decided to shut it down, or whatever the case may be. We talk about how these fang companies. What if they did disappear? Like Facebook could definitely just take be taken away. like at what they did in Australia with the news, and Australia is considered a "quote unquote" Western
1: country. I kind of think of governments as boards of companies, anyway. That's yeah, like how, <laughs> that's how they run. These Pretty much, days. yeah. Yeah, so it's 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 really interesting, there's actually a resource online that allows you to see where your country is ranked in terms of accessibility. And the US is much higher than you expect it to be. So, you know, I can't remember the research, the, the link for the life of me right now. But if you Google most accessible countries, you would probably be able to find out and you will find out that your country is not as free as you think it is.
0: Mm hmm. Uh, transparency, transparency index, index. <laughs> yes Thank thanks you,
1: <laughs> <laughs> nice prompt <bump> over there <laughs> but it's really it's really, really useful um this transparency index for understanding exactly how free you are because a lot of us make assumptions, you don't know what you're not allowed to see, you know, like until you go look in to find out what it is that you're yes that's being blocked from your position. You know what,
0: I just found out that I had no idea that encryption is illegal in certain countries. And in certain countries, it's punishable by fine or by arrest. I think that's crazy. Oh, I had no idea.
1: I think the U.S. had a bill last year that was looking to create backdoors for encryption so as to scan for child pornography content. The, the angle is, you know, child pornography is being passed through encrypted channels. So let's create a backdoor and filter traffic for this kind of material. But once you create a backdoor for encryption, then it's not encrypted, is it? It's a pretty binary yeah. thing, is it it's encrypted or not. So there's a lot of narratives in the space to open up encryption you see like i said earlier freedom is a choice to accept that it's the spectrum and to be free in your own way means that other people are free in their own ways as well and you might not always like it so yeah that's just unfortunately a reality that we have to accept otherwise we have to accept um you know 1984 (laughs) yeah yeah
0: but i you know what I didn't realize is that i I kind of assumed that encryption would be illegal in China, but actually, I read Finland. they can just straight up request your encryption keys and you have to give them over, yeah, so it's encrypted, but like if the government wants your encryption keys, they can just have them.
1: well, I think that's the problem because we live in an illegal infrastructure, so when you have a company that needs to comply to a legal infrastructure in a specific way, then you have a company that has its best interest, which is to stop the company from being sued by the government, which will comply. So that's why I think it's a war against centralization, because it's not actually the company's fault that they live with a legal infrastructure to operate. That's just kind of the way the world works. So once we look at a fundamental shift in this, and we look at decentralization, Then you have a system that kind of is able to resist in a specific way and also open in a specific way because what is illegal in Uganda is very different from what is legal in the US. And, like, in the case of Mysterium VPN, you have a guy pinging the US server and gaining all the access that a US resident has, all from his home in Uganda, right? So, that for me is pretty amazing, it's compared to like. Him using a VPN and then the VPN company being contacted by the Ugandan government. It's a terrible metaphor. But I'm going to keep going with it, and you know them sharing his data because what are they going to go do? Find the guy in the u s who's a known yeah. address is not possible. so I think that it allows people in regulatory spaces that are very oppressive access, and that that's fundamentally what, what we're here to build. We're here to open mm-hmm. open the internet
0: yeah. Yeah. There's a Brene Brown quote. I think I think it's Brene Brown. I'm not actually sure, but somebody I listened to talks about how everything was made to have a rule. So law and government, they were all built on a set of rules. And then everything else that doesn't fall into a rule is art. And so it's like, the uncategorized bucket is technology, art, and all of these things that become really innovative because they are not governed by a set of rules. So I think that Mysterium definitely falls into this category where we're trying to uh, not like break the rules, but break out of the system and not necessarily follow like the regulatory governing systems that are set in place that don't serve open communication and build trust within communities
1: so the fundamental thing we get this question a lot internal like especially from our node runner community which is what is my liability like Mm -hmm. what happens if something gets passed through my node that is not for sure so There's two ways in which we've tackled it. One is um, we teamed up with another DVPN in the space and we created legal advisory, not legal advice, but legal advisory content tips on how to run a node and protect yourself, templates, emails, how to understand whether or not this is a real claim or not. And that was one way we've dealt with it. And the second way we've dealt with it is we're working on whitelisting as a feature which allows nodes to choose what kind of traffic that they let through their node. So you Mm -hmm. can on a global level go, I will let social media traffic through. I'm going to let Wikipedia traffic through, but I'm not really interested in letting adult entertainment run through my node. And then you can set those parameters and then traffic that is pinging towards that specific domain will just come through your node. And that's a technological way we're looking to solve that. We've released one version of it and I think we're going to be working on releasing it later this year. So that's super exciting because it's going to help us scale our node network. Because right now, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you've heard of Tor Browser. No. So Tor Browser was a ex-U.S. Navy project. And they're like the old school DVPN. Yeah, They're exit nodes. A bunch of exit nodes run globally and people can use a browser and connect to it. We're different in the sense that we are a decentralized VPN. So it's not just the browser traffic that's encrypted. It is all traffic running through your machine, right? So Tor has had several cases come up against their exit IPs, but none of them have stood up in court. So it just goes Mm. to show that like, and Tor have been around for 10 years. So in that sense, it goes to show that the legal precedent doesn't exist at the moment for this kind of project. And we and as technologists, we're always going to be slightly ahead of regulation. Regulation is going to follow. And I hope with some of the working groups that I sit on, we are able to work with legislators to help them understand the technology a bit better so that they're not like, let's open encryption up with back doors. I'm like, that, that that doesn't make any sense. So, you know, we, we're working really hard also to educate on a regulatory level because these guys don't completely spend all their time in the tech space, you know, so it's it's a piece of work. To move the entire system, to understand what we're building, and we're always going to be slightly ahead. I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Do you know who Ross ilbitch is? Oh my god, what
1: is his name sounds familiar. Ross Ulbrich? Ross He's a computer scientist. I'm googling him. Oh, darknet Silk Road dude. Yes, <laughs> yes. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I'm very bad with names. <laughs> I'm very bad with names. But yeah, Silk Road, one of the dark nets, older ones, one of the older marketplaces in the on the dark net. But so the thing is, Tor Browser is not just for the dark net yet. Yeah. Like it also can be used to serve the regular old web. So it has a bit of a bad rep. Um It's very slow. Don't try and watch a movie on Tor. Watch a movie. Yeah. It's, like It's yeah. very slow. But that's because you're pinging across multiple IP addresses. So it has multi-hops, right? Like, and in mm-hmm. that sense, it's a little bit more private than Mysterium Network. Whereas with Mysterium at the current stage, we have one hop to a residential IP. We will be introducing multi hops later, but our primary use case is unblocking content. And we, we know humanity has a very short attention span. So if they have to wait for it, they're not going to. So currently, one hop and multi hops coming soon. Right. But with one hop, is
0: there' a concern that someone would be using my ip address continually using my ip address alone to do illegal activities and then that would transfer legal ownership to me or there's no precedent for that yet right
1: there's no precedent for that at the moment so that's the that's the reality and also with one hop like You don't at Tor exit nodes are selected when you first open the browser. You don't actually select the exit nodes on the browser, but with like with the Mysterium DVPN, you can set parameters on pricing, on the quality that you want of streaming, etc. And then you get a list of options and you just click on one and connect. So if you keep changing up as a user your exit node, then you know you're not parsing your traffic through the same node all the time and you're distributing your risk, yeah, right.
0: As a user, can I decide who comes into my network and who doesn't?
1: As a user, nobody's coming into your network. As a Or I mean,
0: uh, yeah. Can I decide who is using my IP address?
1: No, you can't. Because we're still in testnet. We're in testnet 2.0. We just upgraded. We're going to be releasing our Matic integration very soon to make transactions cheaper, then move on to mainnet. And this kind of thing on not so much who, but what. So this is what traffic slicing was. That's what I was talking about. I I think it's more global to let the node choose what kind of traffic comes through there. Like that's, I think that's more important as a use case kind of piece for them as compared to who we might actually, now that you talk about it, think about like certain geographic regions you want to block. If you decide as somebody in the US, you do not want to let Russian traffic come through, then you might be able to do that. But like I said, that's a much later feature. Mm -hmm. Uh, we want to get on Ethereum mainnet first. I think that's our biggest priority for this year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very exciting. So what else is in the pipeline or coming for Mysterium?
1: Oh my gosh, I'm so so many things. <laughs> <laughs> we've we've been moving really, really quickly. Like I said, we grew our user base, our monthly active user base by 25%. I just looked at the numbers earlier for some reporting in just this quarter. And this came alongside with a migration from our first testnet to our second testnet, which is on the Ethereum test testnet and integrated with like moving into integration with Matic. So that's a big piece. The Matic integration is a huge piece because it reduces the cost of users entering the network because Matic makes transaction fees like a million times cheaper than the Ethereum blockchain. And we all know what's happening with gas fees in this industry right now, right? So it it doesn't make any sense. Hey, you can pay six cents for the movie, but pay $15 to top up your account. So it's, um, the Matic integration is going to be for us. Following that, we're also releasing in the next couple of weeks, a complete facelift on our mobile apps. We're working on our Windows apps, facelifts, uh, Mac app facelifts, and it's a user experience quarter, I would say. (laughs) Yeah, great iOS app coming soon. There's just so much going on and that's just on an app level. We're also really working super hard to build out ecosystem partners. So finding people who can go market with in specific regions like China and Ukraine for complementary software that will help people on the ground communicate more freely. That's something that's coming up in the next couple of months too. So I'm super excited about that because I'm quite driven by impacts, and I think this piece is going to really drive access to information for people on the ground, and that's something I'm excited about so much. You should download our app and tell us what you think. A lot of quality parameter improvements, which are very boring, but mean that the app runs so much smoother than it used to, and it's a joy to use right now. So I'd love to know what you think if you haven't already used it. Awesome.
0: Okay, I'll let you know. Well, Charmini, thanks so much for joining. If our listeners want to find you and Mysterium Networks, where can they look?
1: So you can check us out on mysterium.network. And you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore Charmini. Perfect. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you, Amy. This has been really fun.